It is good to be back with you this morning. Tracy and I enjoyed and very much appreciate the time away that we had to celebrate our 25th anniversary. We had a great time and a great and tiring trip to London and Paris, walking many miles and seeing many historic and religious sites. There are just so many great things to see in these old European cities that you certainly cannot get it all done in one trip. There are great churches, and not just cathedrals, but there are great Protestant churches. One of the things that I was looking forward to seeing in London were the great Protestant churches of old, and so we went to the church where D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached for so many years, one of my favorite authors, except we could not get in. We went and tried the doors that we saw and were unable to get in, so I was a bit disappointed about that. Another day, we walked quite a ways and found the the famed Metropolitan Tabernacle where the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, preached for so many years to thousands of people. We were able to get in there. One of the staff members allowed us into the sanctuary, and he reminded us, he said, you understand this is about a sixth of the size of what it was when Spurgeon was here. Because of the bombings that took place during World War II, the church was heavily damaged, and when it was redone after that, it is a fraction of its original size. And of course, I said, can I go up to the pulpit? And he said, no. I said, but I'm a Protestant pastor. I'm the pastor of Beaver Dam. And he said, no. So that didn't didn't help me out. There is great architecture, though, of course, others can appreciate that better than I can. Countless buildings that have been around for centuries and are magnificent and detailed. We came out of one, and Tracy pointed to the statues of the apostles that were up on the top of this church, very high above us, and certainly the details we could not see. And she she remarked that if we were able to see them up close, we would be able to see the detail that went into them, detail that they knew was not going to be seen from the ground. And yet they put in that detail nevertheless. There are great buildings, buildings like the Palace of Versailles where we spent a day, the royal residence of Louis XIV prior to the French Revolution. And on its grounds, the little hamlet that his queen, Marie Antoinette, built for herself to escape the royal palace and to live like a peasant. But if you saw that little hamlet, you would understand that she didn't know what it meant to live like a peasant. The palace was built by the king to show and to demonstrate his greatness. He was a young king and wanted to make sure everyone knew how great he was. Prior to that being the royal residence, it was in Paris itself in a building that is the largest building in the world that now houses the museum, the Louvre, which is the largest art museum in the world. There are great cathedrals like Notre Dame, and of course you know that we were not able to see that inside. We were able to get around it about a block away at all angles, uh, but we were unable to see because of the fire. And then of course there are other cathedrals there like St. Chapelle, which is just down the street a ways and is beautiful in its own right. And with all of the greatness, all of the sights that are there, it attracts a lot of people. There are great crowds. People who have traveled from all over the world to see these great sights and many others that I have not mentioned. In fact, there were times that we knew something was great because of the crowds. 
For example, when we were in the Louvre, they had these long hallways where there are paintings on each side of the hallway or sculptures, and we'd be walking down the center of the hallway and sort of glancing at them, not really looking at them too uh, seriously as the others were doing. But then we would come across a spot where a crowd had gathered. They were no longer walking, but they had stopped, and that told us there's, there's something great here. This must be a Picasso or some other great artist, or, or the Mona Lisa, of course, which is so great, she has a room to herself. And while I realize this sounds merely like a recap of our trip, minus the pictures, I really do have a point. My point is that you can't hide greatness. Greatness invariably gets out, and as it gets out, it attracts a crowd, We've certainly seen in the Gospel of Mark that crowds play a prominent role in the life and ministry of Jesus. But in these cases, they are not coming to see a palace nor a painting. They are coming to see a person. They are clamoring around the person of Jesus Christ. And so today we are talking about the fact that you cannot hide greatness. There were actually times in Jesus' life where He sought to be hidden. We're going to see that this morning, that there was an occasion where he was in a house and his desire was that they not know he was there. And yet such is his greatness that he could not remain hidden. At other times, specifically in the second story we are looking at today, there are going to be times when he specifically tells them not to talk about his greatness, and yet they do it anyway. Because greatness cannot be hidden. Let's look at Mark's gospel, chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 24. And like we've done throughout, or at least for the most part, we're going to read these stories separately and deal with them one at a time. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table Eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The first of our stories that close out chapter 7 this morning introduce us to a desperate woman who finds Jesus. Now I realize and have acknowledged in the past that there is on the surface some repetition here. But at the same time, there is more beneath the surface than first meets our eye. I mean, here we find another story of a demon being expelled, and the second story is a man who is healed of a physical ailment, something we have already looked at in both cases. Two more miracles. The details certainly are different, but the plot line is much the same. Furthermore, you might be tired of hearing about miracles that have occurred in the lives of others. As you hear these stories one after another, it reminds you that the miracle that you want in your life has not occurred, that the prayer you've been praying for a long time has seemingly not been answered. 
And I understand those concerns and have them myself. But there is, once again, more here than meets the eye. You'll recall that earlier in the chapter, Jesus had a confrontation with the religious leaders because His disciples ate with unwashed hands. Now, this was not an issue of hygiene. This was an issue of the law. Not the written law of Moses, however, but the oral law of the religious leaders. They wanted to know why Jesus was allowing His disciples to disobey the oral law or what is often called the tradition of the elders. And in reply in this confrontation, Jesus instructed them that the heart was the issue, that it wasn't a matter of what came into a person that defiled them. The problem was a problem of the heart, and it was because of the heart that our lives are defiled. And so in clarification from that, in verse 19 of chapter 7, Mark declares that Jesus declared all foods are now clean, which is one of the reasons why we do not follow the Old Testament Jewish dietary restrictions. Now, I remind you of all of that because it's been two weeks since we studied it and because it is considerably important when we look at the section we are dealing with today. Jesus is leaving Galilee. We've been in Galilee virtually the entire time in Mark's gospel. That is where the first year and a half of his earthly ministry is centered. But he is leaving there now in this section of Scripture, and he is going to places like Tyre and Sidon. And it is in Tyre where he finds a woman, and this is very significant. This is not just another city. This is not just another town. This is not just another spot on his itinerary. And I know that as we read Scripture, we sort of pass over this very quickly because we don't know where Tyre is. We don't know anything about Tyre. And so we read it and just assume Jesus is in another town, He's healing another woman, and it's pretty much the same as it's been before. Now, He is leaving Galilee probably for a combination of reasons. Perhaps He wants to leave to get away, to spend some alone time with His disciples to further instruct them. Maybe that's part of the reason why He goes into this house and desires to be left alone. It is also likely that he is escaping, at least temporarily, the persecution from Herod Antipas and the dialogue and confrontation that he has had and will continue to have with the Pharisees and scribes. Or maybe it is to prepare, to plan his next course of action. But much more significant as to why he goes is where he goes. Tyre is Gentile territory. It was part of the district of Phoenicia in what is now modern Lebanon. And as far as we know, this is the only time in Jesus' earthly ministry where He ventured outside of the borders of Israel. Now, we do know that He's met people from here already. We know from chapter 3 that, among other places, some people have come from Tyre and Sidon to meet Him. But this is His first journey outside of Israel. And this is not just Gentile land, though it certainly is. This is Gentile land inhabited by pagan Gentiles with a long history of opposition against Israel. To the Jewish mind, this is probably the most extreme expression of paganism that a Jew could ever expect to encounter in his lifetime. I mean, if you want to go to the worst place possible in the Jewish mind... Tyre just might be that place. In fact, the residents of Tyre took up arms against the Jews during the Maccabean Revolt. 
They sided with their enemies. And years later, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of the residents of Tyre, they are our most notoriously bitterest enemies. That's how significant this is. Jesus is going in the minds of the Jew to the worst place possible, to our biggest enemies. And when he gets there, he is going to perform a miracle very similar to the miracles he's performed in Galilee. We need to see this connection. If in the previous stories two weeks ago we learned that all foods are clean, that it's not that what goes into a person that defiles, but it is what comes out from the heart. These stories in the latter half of chapter 7 teach us the same truth about people. There are no unclean people who do not need the gospel. The gospel is for all, not just a select few. The gospel is not just for America, it is for the world. The gospel is not just for people who are like us or people we like. The gospel is for everyone. And this was a lesson long in learning for the disciples and one that we continue to struggle with, perhaps more subtly even in our own day. You recall in Acts chapter 10, the vision that Peter had? God is about to send Peter to a man by the name of Cornelius, who also is a Gentile, who is a Roman soldier, but God knows that Peter is not ready for this mission until he first has a vision. So prior to going to see Cornelius, God gives Peter a vision. That vision is a great sheet coming down out of heaven, and on that sheet are all kinds of animals. And Peter is instructed to arise and eat. And what does Peter say? Peter says, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is unclean. And this happens three times. And God says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. So when Peter met Cornelius, Peter said to Cornelius, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And that is the same lesson that we need to see entire. In a house where Jesus wanted some privacy. But by now we know that is not going to happen. Instead, a woman finds him. And this is not just any woman. This is a Gentile by birth and by culture. A Gentile who is in pagan territory. A Syrophoenician. And that is mentioned because Phoenicia was under the control of Syria And it is mentioned to distinguish it from another Phoenicia that was in North Africa. Now, if Jesus went by the three strikes and you're out motto, this woman is already out. She is a woman in a man's world. She is a Gentile woman, and she is a Syrophoenician too. She was socially and religiously unacceptable and had no business coming to a man like Jesus. Of all the people who approach Jesus in the gospel of Mark, this woman has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. She has no credits on her side of the ledger. She has nothing worthy in herself that allows her in a human standpoint to come before a Jewish rabbi. But she also has something else. She is a desperate woman who is a mother. Now, as you know, I was not here last week, the first time in my ministry that I have not preached on Mother's Day. Tim Keller says there are cowards and there are regular people. There are heroes and then there are parents. 
Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if a child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save them. And that is what we see in this text. Not just a desperate woman, but a desperate mother who desires to see her daughter saved from this demon, and she is willing to do anything to see that that happens. And so she comes to Jesus. No doubt his ministry had preceded him. She had heard about the miracles. She had heard that he could cast out the demons. And so this desperate woman begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And in response, Jesus makes one of the most shocking and controversial statements that he ever made. Look again at verse 27. In response to this desperate woman, Jesus says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now for us, dogs are mostly positive. That is, we think highly of them and spend billions of dollars annually to care for our pets and for our dogs. Many people treat their dogs like children. If you don't believe that, peruse social ministry, uh, social, uh, what do you call it? Social, uh, it's not ministry, uh, social, uh, whatever it's called. You know, what it, you know what I'm talking about. Peruse social media, thank you. Or go downtown and stay there for a few minutes and you are likely to find someone carrying a little dog in their arms as if it is a child. Because we love our dogs, but that was not the way it was in the first century. This statement is a massive insult. Unworthy of our Lord, we think. In fact, in our day, we would say this is racist to call this woman a dog. Dogs in Jesus' day were scavengers and dirty. That is why the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. This is clearly a derogatory term. I mean, elsewhere, Jesus says himself that you are not to give what is valuable to the dogs. Elsewhere, we hear Jesus talking about a dog licking the sores of a beggar. Paul talks about his opponents and calls them dogs. It is the most despicable and miserable of creatures in the first century mind, which is why they thought it was an appropriate term for Gentiles. But the question is not, what did the Jewish culture of the first century think about dogs? The question is, why would Jesus use this term when a desperate woman comes to him for healing for her daughter? Well, it is possible that he is quoting a parable here. That is, this is not really his words. He is just quoting a well-known parable that this woman would have heard. And while that might be the case, it does not solve the dilemma as to why Jesus would use it. It can be softened somewhat by understanding the term, that this term is one used for a household pet, what we might call a puppy. This is not the traditional word used for the dog out in the street This is the pet or the puppy at the house, which is why you have the whole illustration of eating from under the table. We were at a restaurant in Paris, and of course you know there's a a language barrier, and I ordered a chicken dish. I was trying to save a couple of dollars by ordering just your basic chicken dish. And the woman said to me, the waitress, at least I'm pretty sure she said, 
That's just yard chicken. You don't want that. You want the special. The special is better chicken, she said. It's not yard chicken. It's much better. And so I took her advice, and I got the better chicken, as if there is a difference. I don't know. In hindsight, I'm pretty sure she was just upselling me, and it worked. But she was making a distinction between your average chicken and what they had on special that day. There is a distinction here between the word dog and puppies, but again, that doesn't solve our total dilemma. This is, in all likelihood, an acted-out parable. And what we do know is this, Jesus has vigorously opposed, in the earlier portion of this chapter, He has vigorously opposed the religious leaders' views of defiled things. Therefore, it would be hard to imagine that He then immediately turns around and calls this woman unclean. So perhaps He's merely testing her faith, seeing if she has enough resolve to stay around after He makes this statement, or is she going to go home? Make no mistake about it, he is making a distinction between Jew and Gentile. He is saying that his ministry was first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that's not something that is just said here. That is something we see across the New Testament. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And remember, Mark is writing to a Gentile audience who are listening very attentively to see how Jesus is going to minister to the Gentiles who are outside of Israel. But as shocking as this statement is from the lips of Jesus, the response from the woman is equally surprising. She does not give up nor go home Remember, this is a desperate mother fighting for her demon-possessed daughter. So instead of leaving, she follows through with Jesus' acted parable and even expands upon it. She acknowledges that what he says is true. She knows that his mission is first to the Jew, but that that does not exclude his mission to the Gentile. And so she goes on to say, yes, Lord, but even the dogs... Eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. It is not right to take the bread from the children. Even she understands the place of priority of the Jews. But neither does this exclude the Gentiles. All she needs is some crumbs. And eating those crumbs does not interrupt the children at the table nor take food away from them. It is simply eating from their surplus. In fact, one could make the argument that the crumbs are intended in some way for the household pets. There is no waiting here. She can eat at the same time as Israel. Now, this is what I want you to see. It is truly amazing that this woman understands the parable of Jesus and expands upon it by applying it to her own life. Remember, we've seen repeatedly that the disciples do not understand the parables that Jesus speaks. So that when they get alone with Jesus, they say to him over and over again, would you explain to us what you just said? Because we don't get it. But not only does this woman get it, she understands what Jesus is saying. She expands upon it and rightly applies it to her own life and the ministry of the Messiah. She knows that he's come first for the Jew, but she also knows that salvation is for the Gentiles. And so she takes him at his word. And Jesus recognizes this. 
Remember, I said at the outset that the word faith is not here, but her very coming demonstrates faith. And so he declares that her daughter is well, and when she goes home, she finds that indeed that is the truth. This is the only occurrence in Mark where Jesus exercises a demon from a distance. And Mark says that the healing is the result of her statement. Matthew makes it more explicit. There Jesus commends her for her great faith. Against all odds, this woman is the first person in Mark to hear and understand and apply a parable of Jesus to her life and to do so in truth as to who He is as the Messiah. She understands that the mercies of God are not just for Israel, but those mercies extend to the Gentiles as well. Martin Luther said of her, she asked for no more than her due. She took Christ at his own words. He, he then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. The gospel is here if we will take the time to linger. Spiritually, we are all dogs, outcasts and scavengers to whom the gospel does not come because we are worthy. The gospel does not come to us because we deserve it or because we are worthy of it or because we are somehow better than others. The gospel comes to us because we, like this woman, are desperate and needy. There is so much more here than the healing of a woman's daughter whose name we do not know. This is God in Christ taking the power of the gospel outside the confines of Israel to a pagan Gentile society who are in fact enemies of Israel. And the last time I checked, that's good news for all of us because we are all Gentiles. And the gospel has come to us because it is not just for the Jew. Well, let's get to our second story. In the second story, we will see not just a desperate woman who finds Jesus, but we will find an astonished crowd who proclaims Jesus. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In our first story, Jesus tried to stay hidden. He went into a house and wanted some privacy, and we've seen that that is not possible. A woman finds him in her desperation. And now in this second story, we see once again Jesus performing a miracle and then telling the crowd not to talk about it. And yet they talk about it anyway. We're not advocating their disobedience, but we are applauding their, their uh, desire to tell. Jesus is on the move again, this time from Tyre through Sidon into the region of the Decapolis. He's been here before in chapter 5, 
He was in the Decapolis. That is where we found the story of the demon-possessed man who lived in the cemetery and that suicidal herd of pigs who rushed into the water when the demons were cast into them. We learned there that the Decapolis is a loose connection of ten Gentile cities set free from Jewish domination by the Roman general Pompey in 63 B.C. And you may recall when we studied that story that after being released from the demons, the man wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus got into a boat, the man wanted to go with him, and Jesus said, no, you stay here and you go and tell your family what's happened to you. And we said then that this man was the first Gentile missionary. Now, Paul, we call him the apostle to the Gentiles, but this formerly cemetery-living, demon-possessed man is now the first missionary to the Gentiles. And when Jesus comes back into this region at the end of chapter 7, they know of his ministry. Is it possible that this man has indeed been telling and his missionary effort has been successful? At any rate, the route that Jesus takes is a bit odd. Going from Tyre to Sidon on to the Decapolis is a lot like you and I going to Nashville this afternoon through Lexington, Kentucky. None of us would ever take that route. There's a direct route to Nashville. Why would we go north to Lexington and south to Nashville in like a horseshoe shape? That's the route Jesus is taking here. And though we do not know why, we do know that is the direction he goes. And when he arrives in the Decapolis, he has brought a deaf man with a speech impediment. And based on the terminology that is used, it is likely that his speech issue developed later in life as a result of disease or an illness or an injury. This is in all likelihood not from birth. That is not to minimize his problem nor his desire to be healed. He too is desperate and his friends bring him to Jesus. And again, I must state that though the word faith is not found here, there is faith. Because you had to believe Jesus had the power and the ability to do something about your need in order to come to him and beg for such action. So the very act of coming is demonstrating faith. Jesus responds in a unique way to this man's request. He takes him away from the crowd privately, demonstrating his interest in him as an individual, not just as one of the masses. He puts his finger into his ears, he spits and touches his tongue, all of which sounds rather odd to us, and in fact, we might even say it's rather gross. We know that Jesus could heal just by his word. We've talked about that. We've just seen that Jesus can exercise a demon from a distance. So why does he go through all of this other stuff here in this story? Well, the touching certainly conveyed his concern his willingness to come in contact with that which is often deemed to be unclean. Beyond that, we might say that Jesus was speaking this man's language, sign language, in order to communicate with him. What about the sigh that Jesus utters? Did you notice that? He, He sighed and looked up to heaven. Why did he sigh? Is this a sign of exasperation? Has Jesus finally tired of people coming to him? When he wants some time to himself or with his disciples and they keep coming and they keep coming and they want something and they want physical healing from him, has he finally had enough? Certainly we would not come to that conclusion. He's not reached his boiling point with people. I think this is a sigh of exasperation, 
a sigh of sadness and grief at what the enemy has done to God's creation. He sees people and once again has compassion on them because of what they are enduring. But whether we understand all the details or not, the man is miraculously healed and speaks plainly. And then Jesus once again commands silence. An odd statement for us. We've seen it before, and when we've seen it before, it's been in Gentile territory. And we said on those occasions, we call this the messianic secret. That is, early in the ministry of Jesus, he tried to downplay the idea that he was the Messiah, not because he was ashamed of it, but because he knew there were a lot of misconceptions about who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. And if the word got out at that point that he was the Messiah, they would try to sweep him up into a military reign over the Romans, and that was not what he was there to do. So we understood in Jewish territory, because of the misconceptions, that he downplayed this idea, at least early on. But we're not in Jewish territory here. We're in Gentile land. So why would Jesus downplay this and tell them to be quiet? I think in order to explain that, we have to go to something else we've talked about, And that is the fact that his primary ministry is not a miracle worker. Is he a miracle worker? Absolutely. But that is not what he came to do primarily. He is first and foremost a proclaimer of the fact that the Messiah has come, and he is that Messiah, and therefore the kingdom of God is at hand. And if he gets swept up up into this miracle-working mentality, It is likely to hinder him, as it's done in other places, from his primary ministry of proclaiming the Messiah has arrived. We still struggle with this today. People who want the physical from Jesus but don't really want Jesus. Of course, they would never say it in those terms. They come when they are sick and need healing. How many times have I heard someone from a hospital bed proclaim to me, preacher, if God will heal me from this, I'm telling you, I'm going to be a different person and I'm going to serve him all of my life, only when they get healed to go back to the way they were living before. How many times do people come to Jesus when they are broke and need some financial help? And if Jesus provides that financial help, they go right back to the way they were living before. Or if Jesus doesn't provide it, they get angry and leave. The point being that our spiritual lives should be the priority. Our relationship with Christ through faith should be of more value than anything else Jesus does for us or gives us. But at any rate here, they do not remain silent. They are amazed and they continue to proclaim it. Perhaps that ought to be our evangelism strategy. Perhaps we should tell people, don't talk about Jesus. It's a secret. Don't tell anyone what Jesus has done for you or who he is. Because we know that when we're told to keep a secret, we usually don't. And these folks are told not to tell, and yet they immediately proclaim because they are astonished at what they've seen. Now, I suppose you'd be happy if I would just stop right there. But you would miss what I think is the best part of all of this. I've told you several times that there is more in these stories than initially meets the eye. And in the first story today, we saw that it was not just about a woman with her demon-possessed daughter, but it was about Jesus taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the dogs, to the enemies of Israel. 
because he had come to save them too. This second story is not just about a man who can now hear and speak. It's about the arrival of the Messiah. You will recall that earlier in the service I read for you from Isaiah chapter 35. Because Mark is writing his gospel to Roman Gentiles, he does not use many Old Testament references. You find that in Matthew because Matthew is writing his gospel primarily to Jews. But Mark, writing to Gentile uh, Christians, is not using the Old Testament very much. But here he seems to. It's not overly apparent, but because of the word he uses for speech impediment, a very rare word, most commentaries believe that he is referencing Isaiah 35 here. I read to you verse 2 of that earlier. That passage says, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And permit me to read again verses 5, 6, and 10. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And then verse 10 And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And in verse 2 again, it says, The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Where are we in Mark chapter 7? We are in Lebanon. The deserts of Lebanon would receive the joy of God, and that is what we are seeing in Mark chapter 7. What Isaiah said would happen is what we are seeing in this story in Mark chapter 7. Those witnesses to this event in the Decapolis did not just see a man who could not hear or a man who could not speak plainly. Now he can do both. They saw God. They saw Jesus was doing what the Old Testament said the Messiah had come to do, and therefore the kingdom of God is at hand. And again, that demands a response. We cannot see and hear that the Messiah has come and walk away the same. When we're back in Mark chapter 7, we hear the crowd say, He does all things well. Sort of reminds you of creation, doesn't it? Where after creating, God steps back and says, it is very good. Jesus, in His work of redemption, is like the Father in His work in creation. It is done well and leaves nothing to be desired. But in closing, let me ask you this. When it comes to your life, could you make that statement? When it comes to your life, can you say, I know Jesus does all things well? What about in the way he has created you? Would you say, Jesus has created me well? Or are you bitter about the fact that you're not as tall or athletic or as beautiful as someone else might be? What about in how how he responds to your requests? Do you hear these stories of miracles, and instead of rejoicing in the fact that God is, in fact, sovereign over all of these things, it just makes you angry that He's not healed you or the loved one that you've been praying for? 
What about in how he has provided for you? Would you say that Jesus has done all things well in what he's given me? Or would you say that you're envious of what others have? And as a result, you say, God's not been fair to me. What about in the plans that he has for your future? Do you say Jesus has done all things well? Or do you look at your dreams for your family or your career and wonder why they're struggling, maybe even falling apart, while seemingly others have their dreams fulfilled? It would benefit all of us to take our eyes off of our circumstances and off of comparisons and see again the Messiah who has indeed come and has done all things well. And if He has redeemed you, meaning that you are saved, then you have reason to leave here rejoicing and amazed and as a result telling others about Christ. Let's pray.